This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 372 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show two Air Force firefighters and the men behind the Fire Dog podcast, Master Sergeants Matt Wilson and Ben Perry. Now, what made this unique is that Matt was in Virginia and Ben was in Germany. So this is a truly international conversation. So we discussed a host of topics from their journeys into the fire service, the differences between military and civilian firefighting, aircraft, rescue, and many, many more topics. Before we get to that conversation, as I mentioned every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do read your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for people to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you take a moment and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Master Sergeant Matt Wilson and Ben Perry. Enjoy.
So Matt and Ben, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time from completely different sides of the planet to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, thanks for giving us the opportunity. Thanks for answering the, our call on this. Um, you know, the caliber of guests that you have is pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, just two regular Joe Air Force firefighters talking with you is uh, it's a pretty big honor. So thank you. Beautiful. And Matt, I see your, uh, your um, picture on this Skype is you standing next to Jocko. So I guess that's one of the yeah. people, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got to meet him in January um, just before COVID hit. He was doing kind of a, uh, he called them gigs. He was selling his new book. Uh, that uh, you know we'll probably mention later on, but yeah, yeah, big fan. Listen to all his podcasts and read all his books and everything. So beautiful. Well, we'll start at the very beginning. And so, Ben, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Today, I am sitting in beautiful Oberammergau, Germany. Um, normally, I'm stationed at Ramstein Air Base, but I'm actually on temporary uh, education, you know, TDY over to Oberammergau at the NATO school taking an NCO intermediate leadership course. Beautiful. All right. And then Matt, where are we finding you on planet earth? I'm at, uh, I'm in Hampton, Virginia. I'm in Langley air force base. Um, actually sitting at the fire station right now. My house is just right down the street. Very cool. All right. So then I like to start at the very beginning and kind of see your journeys into the military and obviously then fire specifically. So we'll start with you then, Matt. So tell me, um, where were you born and then what was your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings? Okay, sure. Yeah, I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada. My dad is also an Air Force firefighter or was an Air Force firefighter uh, through the 80s and early 90s. Um, I was actually born on Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, my parents met in Vegas, uh, got married. I have... Uh, Two, two siblings, they, they had three kids total together. And then, uh, you know, my, they divorced, my dad got remarried, um, and, uh, two more kids. So four siblings total. Um, yeah. So, and then we, I traveled around a little bit cause went through, went through the divorce. Um, and you know, they split up, it wasn't too pretty. So we kind of went to different areas of the country. I, I moved to uh, New York at one point, West New York, lived with uh, my mom and uh, around my grandparents there. I uh, lived in Kentucky at one point, West Kentucky. That's where I went to high school. Um, you know, went to about 11 different schools, K through 12. Um, gra- end- end- ended up graduating high school in Kentucky. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, joining the military. Right. Well, you hear about this a lot, especially in the military, but even, you know, just, just families that up sticks a lot. Um, what were the pros and cons of that kind of uh, upbringing moving around so much? Um, you know, I, I got to see a variety of, of different people, a variety of perspectives. I mean, you, you live in Las Vegas and, um, you know, there's a whole, it's a melting pot of, of people. There's a lot of different people from different backgrounds that live there, go into high school and kind of, uh, as as a Caucasian male, kind of being the minority, which is fine, but there was a just a whole slew of different kind of people, and then Kentucky, of course, is the kind of opposite end of the spectrum. Not too much diversity there, um, but a, a really tight knit community. Uh, and then West New York is kind of similar, but uh, still kind of different values, different way of thinking, different way of talking, um, and just a bunch of different uh, you know accents and all across the spectrum. So meeting and interacting with. Just a bunch of different people really uh, w- was pretty much the positive. I, I really um, am able to see from a whole lot of different perspectives interacting with those kind of people. A negative, of course, is, uh, you know, I haven't been in one place more than like four years in my entire life. And uh, 
I look forward to the day I get to kind of settle down and chill out a little bit and live in one place and get to know my neighbors well and get to know my community well, um, without having to, to move away. So. Yeah, it's interesting because you have that, you know, again, that, that much wider spectrum as far as your field of vision on humanity in general, but you, you lose that kind of tribal element of belonging. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's exactly right. Brilliant. All right. Well then, Ben, same question to you. So, so, uh, you know, where were you born and what did your parents do? And then the, the family dynamic. So I was born in Nacogdoches, Texas. Um, grew up in Oklahoma, though. Moved away when we were two, back to Oklahoma. My uh, mom and biological dad split, and uh, she she found a, a suitable, better replacement. <laughs> My uh, stepdad, who's who's an amazing man, and so we we grew up in Oklahoma. And I, I will say, you know, compared to Matt's story, um, maybe slightly different. You know, I grew up in a in a bubble. Um, never really traveled more than 30 miles from home until I left for the military, so to speak. You know, I, I went to college, you know, 30, 45 minutes down the road. Um, but you know, my parents played a, a huge role in my life, but, um, and my grandmother did as well. Um, she really kind of taught me about faith and, uh, caring and, and that was reflected in my parents and, and. You know, so I try to embrace those values as well for myself. So I think my parents had a pretty strong, you know, impression on my life growing up. Now, did you have any military or first responders in your family? No. Um, my dad, I'll call him my dad, my stepdad, um, worked in the news business. And so I, I you know, tangentially, tangent. Chili? That's not a word. Um, <laughs> it is now, if uh, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of a little bit removed, but he he was involved in many emergencies because he was a photojournalist and he would go film these, you know, crazy happenings. And so he was one of the first photojournalists on scene during the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And uh, just kind of remembering him tell the stories um, that it took him a while to open up on, but remembering the, some of the stories and uh, images he would kind of share with us, um, just kind of an amazing, devastating event, uh, one of many that he put his eyes on. And so I don't know if that so much influenced me, but it was, you know, it's definitely a part of who I am. Now, it's interesting that the Oklahoma bombing, I had Chris Fields on, who was the uh, the firefighter that had the, excuse me, the iconic picture of him holding, sadly, it was a deceased uh, preschooler um, from that event. I had um, Tanya Glenn, who that was one of the first uh, events that she responded to as a psychologist, you know, as, as a counselor for those men and women. Um, so it's interesting that your father now was there too, all these different people that were connected by that. But I've also had a couple of photojournalists. Um, well, uh, Sebastian Junger's best friend was, you know, a, a photojournalist who he lost. And then I just interviewed Janelle, uh, Janelle Norton, who was a photojournalist for the military and then the UN. So when you think about what these men and women do and see, did he ever talk about any sort of kind of ripple effect of the, the, the mental trauma of what he was witnessing? I won't say that he, he didn't talk about it. But it, it wasn't something that he would necessarily often talk about. I, you know, during that time I was young, still um, ninety-five. I was ten years old, and my mother would would kind of shield us from my my dad's 
reaction to it in the moment. But, you know, kind of years later, um, you know, they would share like he would come home and, and cry at night, um, which is nothing wrong, you know, need to express his, his grief over things. And um, that actually helped me understand better that, you know, it was an emotional event and he he was, he was affected by it. And that, you know, that gave me respect for him and, and, uh, made me understand that his job was not just to take pictures of things, but to be there in people's worst day, something all of us can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. I think we kind of forget how many professions are exposed to trauma, you know, in that you've got, you know, forensics and I mean, there's so many different branches that it's not, not the average civilian trauma, which is another layer completely, but just as a job day in, day out to, to be exposed to that has its toll. For sure. All right. Well, then staying with you for a moment. What about athletics? Were you a, a sportsman when you were a kid? Uh, not so much. I uh, played around with basketball a little bit, but I got more into the music scene uh, growing up. I, f- I found that to be where I, I fit in the best. Um, I'm, I'm a large person. I'm 6'3". Um, on a good day. And so many people, you know, would always ask me if I played football or basketball, but really I enjoy playing the drums and, and just kind of being in the music scene when I was younger. Brilliant. All right. Well then over to you, uh, Matt, same question. Were you in athletics? Yeah, sir, that's right. Yeah, I was, I, uh, I played football a better part of my life uh, up to high school. Um, didn't go and play in college or anything, but I also was a member of track team. Uh, I threw shot put and discus. My, my coach told me, Hey, go, go make sure you sign up for track, uh, so that, you know, you can get faster and be a sprinter. And I ended up, you know, walking over with all the throwers, the, when they let me decide where to go, because, <laughs> you know, cause all of my kind of mentors or guys I looked up to on the team were all big guys and they walked over to the shot put ring. So, yep, that's what I did for athletics for the most part. All right. Well, staying with you, Matt. So then, um, when you were school age, was the military always your goal or, or specifically firefighting the military? You know, I, I never knew exactly what I wanted to do. And honestly, uh, went walking into the, uh, the only reason I walked into the air force recruiter was because my friend was joining the air force. I was like, yeah, I'll go with you to get lunch this day. And next thing I know I'm signed up, but I always had this passion. I always had a passion for history and I always had just this love affair with, uh, you know, what, what, um, our veterans and people who had served have done over, um, you know, over the really centuries and decades to, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, we existed as a country. And my, uh, grandfather served in world war II. He was in the army. Uh, you know, he, he, he was actually on a, um, a ship that was kamikaze and he was, you know, floating on a mattress in the ocean and Pacific ocean for a little while till he got picked up and saw some pretty incredible things. And, um, so I always had a, a, a real passion, um, in, in kind of appreciation for the military. So I, I think it was something I always kind of destined to, but I, I never really thought about it. Um, firefighting was something that, you know, I never necessarily thought about doing, but, uh, you know, I always saw the, the stuff hanging in the uh, garage. My dad had all the, you know, memorabilia, firefighting stuff. All the guys that came over to the house were firefighters and, you know, I, I kind of saw how they interacted and, um, you know, I, I was always attracted to that. Um, even the smell, I, I remember the smell. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with proximity gear. It's kind of that silver aluminum foil looking um, firefighting gear. It was uh, it's synonymous with um, aircraft rescue firefighting stuff. And the Air Force used to only use that for protective gear. Well, it has a distinct smell. And I remember 
smelling that as a kid um, on my dad, it, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of s- burned into my memory. And then when I joined the Air Force and ended up going fire protection and got to um, got to the academy and smelled it, you know, it's kind of one of those things that connected me. Um, I remember going to the fire station as a young kid, uh, standing next to the aircraft rescue firefighting trucks. Um, f- for those uh, listening that are familiar with military firefighting, the P-23. And I remember looking up at the tire and, you know, it was taller than me and I was just amazed at it. I remember that the trucks were yellow. I remember a lot. Um, and, but I never had a, a necessary, necessarily a desire. It just kind of happened. And well, I'm glad it did. Yeah. It's funny you say about the suits cause I was never assigned to an airport station specifically, but we, uh, two stations ago, we were, um, right next to one. So we were like second you. And I always remember talking about that. Like, you know, you have the, the ARF truck and, you know, the proximity gear. And there we are with our bunker gear. And I'm like, what exactly are we going to do <laughs> when we get on? Cause it doesn't yeah. seem like we say have the same equipment as everyone else that we're looking at. Well, they actually, they actually kind of did a pivot and realized that, uh, you know, it's, not necessarily important to have that gear. Um, what it's supposed to do, obviously, is protect you from higher, um, higher temperatures, which happen when jet fuel burns. But uh, they, they kind of determine that the your typical structural ensemble can do the same thing. That and it was costing an extensive amount of money to kind of um, to keep buying this proximity gear because it goes bad after like six months of use because the um, the outside layer wears off of it and any any air force or marine corps or navy firefighter listening to this knows that you start to it starts to flake after about 6 months to a year of use and so that's incredibly expensive it has a very short shelf life and so it, long story short the uh, the uh, DOD is went away from it for the most part uh, gotcha. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, we never had the actual specific training. So we, we would stage at the gate, you know, the fence at the airport. And, you know, that was always my thing is, you know, we're going to have to wing it basically because the people inside yeah. the fence are trained purely on aircraft and the people outside the fence have probably never seen an aircraft. So yeah. It was, yeah. I, I wanted to happen just so I could see what, you know, what would actually transpire. Hopefully there'd be some good leadership and we'd be support positions, but yeah, Certainly. interesting. Yeah. All right. So, um, so with that then, so tell me about how you actually, you know, uh, you know, entered the career itself. So you went, you said you went with your friend, um, to the recruiter, which I've heard many, many times. Anyone doesn't want to be on the military, make sure you don't go with your friend when they sign up because you're going to end up signing up too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good friend of mine. And actually it's funny. He's stationed at the same base I'm at right now. Um, he, he's literally down the street from me. We went to high school together. We were good friends in high school. He goes to the recruiter, signs up to be an aircraft uh, mechanic. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go over there. You know, I'm, I love the Air Force. My dad was in the Air Force. Let me go talk to this guy. Um, you know, I don't I don't really remember how I signed up, but I did, you know, a, a young, impressionable 19-year-old kid. So he got me. But uh, one of the things that I was really attracted to was uh, special operations. And, uh, and so actually I joined with the intent of going special operations, and it ended up not panning out. And I, you know, ended up in uh, firefighting. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how that went down. And when you say special ops operations, is that the PJs? Yeah, so there's pararescue and there's combat controllers and then there's tactical air control party, which is TACP. I was uh, signed up for combat control, gotcha. uh, which is, yeah, they kind of, they forward deploy on the battlefield and call in airstrikes. Beautiful. Yeah, I had um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Burke on, who I think he's a Marines pilot. Um, yeah, he's yeah. an F-18 pilot. Yeah, and I think he did yeah. that with Jocko. That's how they actually knew each other. He was um, doing the same position down in Ramadi, I believe. 
Yeah, he will. Yeah, I, I've heard Dave ter- uh, Dave Burke talk extensively on that stuff. Yeah, it's a pretty unique position for a pilot to kind of be a battlefield troop, um, and and connecting with F eighteen pilots and A ten pilots, and you know speaking that pilot language. And yeah, it's pretty awesome stories that Dave Burke has to tell. Absolutely, he was a, he's a graduate of Top Gun as well. Yes, yeah, and a teacher as well. I mean, the guy's just incredible and so humble as well. Yeah, he is awesome guy. Beautiful. All right. Well, over to, to you again then, Ben. So tell me about your journey into the military and you know what your uh, goal was within the military. So the, the Air Force, the military was nothing on my radar um, until it was, I guess we could all say. Um, but I was going to college for computer science in Oklahoma and kind of realized as the as I went on in the years in the program that Although I, I really enjoy the technical aspect of, you know, computers and everything, it really wasn't something I wanted to do for a career. Um, unfortunately, I was a almost a senior at the time. Uh, so I, I made the switch a little late in the game to really continue on the college journey. And so I wanted to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, well, that was about 07. Com- Oklahoma was going through a pretty rough wildland season that year. And... So I decided I wanted to go join a volunteer fire department to help out. Uh, kind of caught the bug for it after a while and dove into that lifestyle a little bit. Um, went to work at a 911 dispatch center. And so I was, I was surrounded by it constantly. Decided I wanted to try to make it a career. Wanted to go look for a job in the professional fire service. And tested for, I believe it was 23 different departments. Um, some individually and then some through the consortium process. Well, as I was testing and getting rejected and testing and getting rejected, I realized after a while why that was happening because the people who were being successful and getting hired into these jobs were making above a hundred points on their test. And I, you know, ask around and they're like, Oh, that's veterans points. I'm like, ah, Okay, so I will never be able to compete with these guys. So might as well join them. <laughs> so uh, again, kind of like Matt, I wasn't planning on joining the military necessarily. It was just kind of a confluence of events. Um, a roommate of mine at the time, uh, unlikely candidate for the military, I thought, but he, he up and joined the Air Force one day. And as he's in the process of kind of getting in the door and doing all the paperwork, his recruiter asks him out to play paintball. And he's like, hey, we're going to go up to the to Oklahoma City and play some paintball. You want to come? Like, yeah, of course. So as I'm up there, the recruiter hooks me. And two weeks later, I've signed paperwork with a guaranteed job for firefighting in the Air Force. Beautiful. So that was your goal right from the beginning then? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I wouldn't have joined the Air Force had they not let me be a fireman. Um, looking back, that was a little short-sighted because I absolutely love what I do as an airman. But I do love being a fireman. Brilliant. Well, I saw that you mentioned the DOD Fire Academy, which I think is very interesting to get that perspective versus what we go through. I'm sure there aren't that many differences, but um, walk me through, you know, from brand new recruit through to, you know, when you're qualified as a firefighter to, to serve the Air Force. So as we come in, all airmen, and this is true of any branch, come in and and go through their version of basic training. And so our basic training is in San Antonio, Texas. Depending on when you came in, it was 
but maybe between six and eight and a half weeks, they, they keep playing with a timeline on it. I went through the, one of the first versions of the eight and a half week course. Um, from there, moved over to Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas, where the Lewis F. Garland Department of Defense Fire Academy is. Um, interestingly, it's, so it's the fire academy for the entire Air Force. And so all branches that have fire protection um, members, because they're all called something slightly different, will come to Goodfellow to receive their training. And so it's a joint academy, Air Force run, but the instructor cadre are from the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy, civilians. Uh, You've just got a wide gamut of folks to share their experiences with all of the students there. I believe it's 13, 14 weeks is the academy. And I know they are in the process of looking at tweaking it to maybe add EMT and some other elements to it, but it currently, I believe, consists of, um, you start off with EMR, emergency medical responder training, going into different blocks of instruction for uh, essentially fire fighter one and two. You'll take your hazardous material awareness and operations, and then aircraft rescue firefighting uh, familiarization. Beautiful. And then, so you're doing the structure stuff as well. Yes. So the majority of your, well, I won't say the majority, large portion of your, you know, education is focused around structural firefighting. Um, many of the principles, you know, coexist in the ARF world as well, but, uh, they, they do spend the firefighting basics blocks, uh, focused on structural firefighting. Right. Now, what about wildland? Because I know a lot of a uh, lot of land over the U.S. is owned, you know, within the mili- military um, perimeters. So what's your exposure to wildland firefighting? I can talk so, on that if you'd like, unless you want to go ahead. I then. was just going to wrap up the academy okay. piece and say in the academy, they they provide some familiarization with it. But there's because our mission set is so diverse in so many different areas of the world, um, they don't necessarily focus on it there. And then I'll, I'll let Matt talk about his experience. Yeah, please. Yeah, so in in um, in the academy, yeah, they like Ben said, they give you kind of a basic understanding of wildland. Uh, they'll they'll throw the gear on you. Uh, they give you some some tools, and and you dig a line, and so you get kind of the very very basic foundational understanding of movement of fire, and you know the purpose of a fire line, and kind of working as a hand crew team. Um, when you go to your installation or your assignment, um, very few um, DOD firefighters participate in wildland firefighting. Not to say that nobody does, though, because um, there are there are a lot of installations out there. Uh, Vandenberg in California is a big one. Uh, Camp Pendleton, the Marine Corps, uh, it's all civilian department, very heavily involved in wildland firefighting. Um, in Anchorage, Alaska, there's a base, Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson. Uh, they they team up with the state and they'll go across the state to fight fires. Um, our role in that is essentially, um, kind of structural protection. So our, you know, we are traditional firefighters in the sense that we ride engines, um, and understand how, you know, to operate them and everything. And so when we get called out to those fires, we'll typically be on the engines and, you know, protecting, uh, neighborhoods, plumbing neighborhoods, um, pre-treating homes, um, and, and some of us are, you know, saw qualified, and so we can, 
you know, fell trees and, and create that defensible space. So, you know, there are, we do participate in, in fires. We are called to fires. Uh, not, you're not going to see too many, um, DOD firefighters and that are members of hand crews. Uh, I don't want to say that there's none that exist cause I don't necessarily know that, but, uh, it, it's very rare. Um, I think Vandenberg has a hot shot team. And so I think they're like a type two hand crew for the state of California. And so they join up and with Cal fire and that, you know, they're part of in the resource ordering system. And, uh, so uh, that's my understanding uh, of wildland firefighter firefighting in the DOD. I, I've been to a, I've been to a couple myself, um, fires and you know, I was a member of a structural protection team while I was there. So. Now, one of the kind of contested elements seems to be, and let me be very clear, I am not a wildland firefighter. Anaheim is probably the best department that I work for that had, you know, wildland teams that deployed and we had wildland interface. But even then I was on a truck company. So I was usually in the city protecting structures while they were out, you know, and in the mountains as it were. But within the community, it seems like one of the most argued points is to be allowed to backfire to prevent a lot of these fires from from happening before they you know become these horrendous fires that we've seen yet again this year is there any leniency or different philosophy within again military boundaries to be able to do that um so you're talking about kind of pre-burning yes. so that yeah you yeah okay yeah they they do it um every year um there is no there is no kind of uh, political fight with it. It, it just it happens um, because the Army and the Marine Corps um, and probably the Navy, too, and even the Air Force, there's a lot of live fire ranges in the Department of Defense. And so, you know, these soldiers, airmen, Marines are, you know, firing, you know, mortars and ammunition, things that can light off fires. And so there's really no, you know, you, you want to burn that so that you don't um, – stop the mission and stop that training. And so every spring in Alaska, while I was stationed in Alaska, um, we would, we would join with the state and we would do, um, controlled burns is what they called. It took us about a week. We'd go through every single range. Um, and we would just basically dump fire all over the place, walk around with torches. It was pretty awesome. And, uh, and, and it's an opportunity for everybody to kind of, um, remember how to how to fight wild and firefighter kind of you know uh, go through the motions again because you've been sitting sitting idle all winter and so it was a good opportunity to train and also you know to to prepare the, the ranges so that the soldiers can train yeah well i'm glad i asked that because that is a you know I've, I've heard such a diverse spectrum from some obviously very progressive areas whether it's you know military bases or just certain parts of the country through to my last place where it was next to a theme park even in any any sort of fire so they didn't even want any smoke blowing in so they would have these men and women you know marching through swamps where there were you know like uh, muck fires and god knows what was you know underneath snags waiting to fall on them just to put smoke out because god forbid smoke blows into you know what i mean so the answer to that would have been a, a good aggressive backfire or some good um checkering you know some some aggressive uh dozer ops to 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 mitigate that but there was so much political pressure that it basically made a very, very dangerous environment for the men and women that were responding. Yeah, we're very fortunate, I think, uh, in the Department of Defense. And I'm only speaking from my experience, obviously, in Alaska with wildland firefighting. But uh, there, I, I guess we don't see the political pressure in, from, from our level. But uh, we do see the controlled burns happen um, without delay every spring. 
Um, and, and it comes on the news, hey, just so you know, you know, the base is going to do a controlled burn. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's never any... There's never any news out there saying, you know, hey, there's people at the gate protesting that, you know, we're doing these controlled burns. There's never anything like that. I think for the most part in the communities that I've lived in, people understand that it's necessary. So I was at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, um, and that is now an Army, a fully Army-run fire department there. But one of the interesting things there, and this this may be the same in Alaska, Matt, I'm not sure, um, but when they would do their burns and wildland firefighting activity, so they would always work hand in hand with the department of forestry and the environmental protection uh, elements there in the state. And um, so if they would always be allowed on the base, their, their representation to assist in those, those burns there to make sure that if there were protected areas that we didn't burn them. Yeah, it's very similar in Alaska. The uh, Department of Forestry, um, they come in and basically take lead. So, yeah, I want to be clear that in, in Alaska, we that department on Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson didn't necessarily take lead, but were kind of, I guess you could call it kind of a unified command. Um, they kind of joined forces, and we as kind of foot soldiers just joined in with the hand crews and say, hey, what do we do? <laughs> you know, we're, again, traditionally structural in aircraft rescue firefighters. And so when you put us in wildland firefighting gear once a year, um, you know, we don't, we need to follow behind those guys, but yeah, definitely we joined up with the state to to make it happen. I I think that, uh, that, you know, they were paid to, uh, to burn. So, um, yeah, we, we pay them money. Beautiful. Yeah. It's just interesting perspectives. Obviously, you know, you guys, have that element where kind of what says you know what is said is is um is law as it were whereas mm-hmm. you know a lot of the urban you know wildland interface that we have there are people living there so i get that there's some sort of resistance however it's kind of prevention rather than than cure same way as you know right now there's no discussion of the underlying health issues in america and all the focus on the covid virus to me it's mm-hmm. the same thing i mean these men and women are risking their lives for these these homes that are out there but then the actual preventative tool is is backfires, you know, um, right. pre-burning. So that way you can mm-hmm. control it in, in a season where it's a lot safer rather than, you know, the Santana's getting hold of a fire and ripping through California, for example. Right. Yeah. And the, the DOD, it, from my perspective anyways, it's, it's kind of an autocratic um, uh, kind of construct, right? So you, you, you do what they say, you know, and, and so on a military base, um, you know, if the if the base commander says we're gonna we're gonna burn this so that soldiers can train, like Roger that we're gonna burn it. <laughs> you know, so um, and the community wants us around too, right? Because we're we're good for the economy in, in most places where we're at, and probably every place that we're at. And so they don't want to put up a fight for something like that because you know they don't want to risk losing us. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And the thing is, you're gonna have a fire regardless. You know, so why not have one that's controlled and a lot safer? Yeah, exactly. And these these people are they are. Um, competent right they they know exactly what they're doing um you very rarely hear of controlled burns kind of getting out of control unless there's a severe wind shift or kind of weather event but th- they know what they're doing so you can trust that uh, they're not going to burn down homes in the process yeah well exactly if you, can, if you can start a fire from a gender reveal 
<laughs> that shows you how uh, how uh, you know it's better just to do it under controlled circumstances. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for that perspective. I'm going to stay with you, Matt, um, because you know, as you mentioned, you went in initially to do special operations. So so lead me through the journey to the fireside for you. Yeah. So I went through, and, and that didn't work out for me. I um, and I went through basic training um, for six and a half weeks. I was just a couple of years before Ben and coming in. And it was still six and a half weeks, so I was fortunate with that. Um, end up at the academy, and the academy was three months. Um, you know, my my experience was, you know, relatively typical. Um, so, it, you, it, the military environment, uh, anybody that's military can attest to this, but it's kind of, uh, you know, shut up in color, and um, it, it, it's almost like, I don't want to, it's almost like a manufacturing line, uh, you know, of of preparation, which not to say that, the, the people teaching it and, and the, the things that we learn aren't valuable and that we don't learn. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to say that, but, um, it's kind of a blur, I guess is my point. Cause it's like, yeah, you, you learn how to tie knots, you learn how to throw a ladder, you, you know, learn how to advance hose, uh, onto the next thing. Right. Um, and so really you learn the bulk of what you, you kind of solidify, let's say what you learned in the Academy when you get to your first you know, when you get to your first installation, your first department, you know, through on the job training. Right. Um, so, you know, you kind of go through this manufacturing line. Okay. You're a firefighter, one, two, our rescue firefighter hazmat ops and awareness and uh, emergency medical responder. Okay. Now you're going to go learn on the job, how to do the job. Right. So you know, that, that was my experience. Pretty, pretty typical. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the one area that I, that I heard about actually from uh, one of the firemen I used to work with in my last place, who years, years, years ago, like in the 80s, he was a fireman in the Air Force. But he, you could just see how excited he got when he talks about the crash rescue training. So actually you know, removing a pilot and that kind of thing. So tell me about that element, because obviously that's not something that most civilian departments are going to train on. Sure. Yeah. Ben, do you want to talk about this or you want me to lead off with it? Yeah, you can go ahead. Okay. Yeah, obviously it's a unique, um, it's a unique thing in, in the air force and in the department of defense that we do aircraft rescue firefighting. And I think we, I think a lot of our civilian counterparts, uh, kind of lean on the, the history of the, the air force and the aircraft and, and kind of developing their own, um, aircraft rescue firefighting departments and vehicles. And so, um, yeah, we, we have the opportunity to, and it's few and far between anymore, but back in, you know, World War II Vietnam, those, these things were dropping out of the sky a whole lot more often than they are now. But, uh, we, we train often on it. Um, in some places they, they burn, uh, what's called JP eight, which is, you know, jet military jet fuel. Uh, they'll light that on fire and you get to go through the motions. Uh, we'll do egress, egress training. So, um, air aircraft pilot egress training out of the uh, fighter aircraft in, you know, heavies. And it's a very unique, it's a very unique thing to do, you know, to, to ladder and, um, uh, a fighter aircraft and to, you know, straddle the cockpit and have to pull a pilot and have to disconnect everything that they're connected to in the, in the cockpit. Uh, we have to understand the sh- shutdown procedures. So we have to know how to emerge. We know how, we have to know how to open up the canopy if they're incapacitated. Uh, and there's a number of ways to do that depending on the aircraft. And we have to know how to shut it down once we get the canopy open. And so we have to manipulate the throttles and, um, you know, do all that kind of stuff, shut off APUs. And, and so a large part of our life 
in Air Force Fire Protection is practicing for that that rare moment, right? And um, I've in my career had to shut down an aircraft one time. It was when I was stationed in Korea and uh, F-16 went off the end of the runway. Um, but you know, I was a member of a team doing that. I didn't, I didn't personally put my hands on the throttle or anything, but we did it one time so far in my career. So again, it's a, it's a rare event, but it's pretty, um, pretty unique that we get to train for that kind of opportunity and we get to go see the aircraft on a pretty regular basis. Ben, what's your take? So, so everything Matt said is, is, um, straight on. I think, uh, an important element to highlight is that our, department at you know as it were is 182 departments worldwide and we are spread out from from one end of the globe to the other and so our mission sets are just um quite different between base to base we have our, our core tasks you know structural firefighting aircraft rescue firefighting but within that you know many of our installations don't even have runways and so there's no aircraft um and then we have different types of mission set that each installation owns. And so I've been stationed at bases that have only heavy aircraft, cargo aircraft. And so I've never operationally dealt with fighter aircraft. And that might be the experience for many firefighters out there that they've, for one reason or another, um, maybe not interfaced with every type of aircraft. And so it's a constant learning process. You know, having been in for a number of years, I will go somewhere, maybe my next assignment will have fighters and I will have to learn again. I will have to refresh myself, you know, leaning on those folks around me. And I, I believe it's the same for, for many of our firefighters. Um, luckily, we do have a, a good number of firefighters that move around into different commands and have a wide breadth of experience that they can bring and share with other people. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing is when most of the civilian, um, you know, airport firefighters, when they think about what they're going to be doing, like you said, it's going to be some sort of commercial or, you know, a private uh, plane. But with you guys, you are not only dealing with the actual fuel load itself, but there's a firework display just waiting to go off as well. So I can't imagine the level of training and the, uh, the potential for disaster when you're making a rescue like that. Yeah, and... You know, with my experience with heavies, um, there may not be as much threat for munitions on board, but you have uh, cargo to think about. And whatever that cargo may be is uh, anyone's guess kind of on some days. So you may have another aircraft in the back of the vehicle or in the back of the aircraft. Uh, you may have tanks. You may have soldiers, right? So um, every day brings a new challenge for us. It's um, like you said, at a commercial airport, you kind of know you're going to have 200 people on a plane and and generally speaking, what these planes are going to look like inside and out. And for us, um, every day is a box of chocolates, you know. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Um, all right. So then we'll stay with you, Ben. So you are stationed in Germany. Obviously, that's, you know, a peacetime base now. Thank goodness. Um, are there any things that you've uh, witnessed within Germany, whether it's the German um, fire department or just, just the, the culture in general, um, that you know, was, was an addition to the way you did it in, in the UK, some, some interesting perspectives that they have over there. Absolutely. So our American military base here in Germany, Ramstein air base has 
seven fire stations on it and about 200 firefighters out of those 200 firefighters. I think it's about 120 of them are German local nationals. And so they actually wear the uniform of, you know, the United States air force fire civilian service get paid, I believe by the air force and, and service, you know, our installations and aircraft, um, which I just, um, I don't know. I, I still get kind of giddy thinking about that, that we, we have such a strong relationship with the local communities that um, we, we intermingle and we, and we bring them on to work side by side. Um, so here in Germany, you know, we have, you know, mo- most, I'll say most of our departments German, but we still fall under American uh, aviation requirements and air force standards um, for our posturing and response. So the German firefighters um, have to understand the American military's, you know, response requirements and vehicles and aircraft, but they bring a, an extraordinary mission set or capability, I should say with them. Uh, so speaking only for Germany and only where I'm at, at least, uh, many of them have shared that to to be a fireman in Germany, they have to have some sort of trade first. And so uh, all of these firefighters are plumbers, electricians, carpenters, mechanics, etc. right? They go through technical training in, in whatever environment, apprenticeship in whatever environment prior to becoming a firefighter. And so they bring this skill set with them that is unparalleled, I believe, at least in the U.S. Fire Service. We have our strengths, but to have a plumber on hand 24-7 is, is, a, is a pretty awesome resource. And, uh, and that's just one of many things. I know they, their firefighting skill set uh, may be different than ours in both the military and American Fire Service, but it's not to say it's bad. Um, it's just slightly different how it's arranged. They have uh, different structures and teams and, and elements, but we've seen them in action a handful of times. We've worked together on some mutual aid calls and um, always performed outstanding work, in my opinion. Beautiful. Yeah, I had a, a German firefighter on, Stefan Schwartz, who uh, you know, is an amazing human being, amazing father, very powerful, you know, sad story as well. But, you know, like you said, here you are now on a base in Germany where, you know, it was, what, 80 years ago where, you know, we were at war. And, you know, it, it just shows that that the hope is one day that we can get there in so many of these other areas as well, because, you know, these are just men and women and, and we're all brother and sister firefighters. And, you know, you, you guys are working together and, um, you know, it's it's such a waste when when there's an entire nation that becomes the enemy when you realize that fundamentally we're all the same people. Absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking more from the military side than the firefighting side, um, they do an outstanding job over here of, uh, encouraging the airmen to get out into the community, both in their private endeavors, but also in their professional, um, like I mentioned in the, in the beginning, I'm, I'm here at a NCO leadership course, with a handful of other nations and that's just one of the many opportunities that uh, being over here in in europe has afforded uh, many of us to to actually grow to some 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 cultural understanding 
and exchange with these other members and uh, really a kind of a life-changing experience to come over here and learn not only new um, skills or um, understandings, but to observe other countries and kind of prove your own mentality wrong about them. Whereas you, you may have come in and thought somebody from Slovenia or Hungary or Bulgaria had a certain way of living or how they, how their military might act. And you come in and you say, you you see that you're really not all that different. Yeah. I love that. Well, Matt, to you, um, same question, but in Korea. So tell me about, um, you know, what it was like working with the Korean people and their fire service. The Korean people are probably the nicest people that I've ever met. Um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of nice Americans uh, and Europeans, obviously, but the Korean people, they it's kind of just embedded in their culture to just treat people nice. And yeah, they we worked alongside them in the fire department. There was a handful of um, civilian, I want to say eight in a department of about 60. So not too many, but you really lean on them for continuities um, in, within the department, understanding the trucks and um, of course, being exposed to their culture uh, was was it's pretty awesome. Uh, it, their food they would cook for us, um, and they uh, it's funny anytime something you know kind of went down, anything serious goes down, they uh, they they end up communicating in, in their native language, which is cool. But none, nobody else can understand what they're saying. So um, as a leader, you like okay, we need to put these guys um, kind of at the helm, driving the the aircraft rescue trucks. Uh, because uh, they're communicating with each other on where to go and how to position and stuff. So, but uh, it, it was unique, um, and it was a it was a great experience. Any um, if anybody has the opportunity to go to Korea and interact with those people, I highly recommend it. A fantastic country, a lot of great things to see. Very very nice people. I was only there for a year, so not as long as Ben's in Germany. Right. Well, with that, I mean, we we obviously saw Korea in the news quite a lot the last few years obviously there was the tension between north south and there was seemingly you know a de-escalation of that tension um where are we at now between north and south korea you know i i I have no idea personally i mean i you pay attention to current events just like any um uh, american would um i know that there was kind of a they they wanted to shut down the exercises at one point the kind of the large peninsula wide exercises um, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily happened. I, we're still going to continue to train. I was there back in 2012. And I don't know if anybody remembers back in that day, there was also kind of a, I, I think it kind of goes in waves <clears throat> with our interaction with Korea. And um, we were at the top of the wave at that particular moment in time, like, oh, it might happen, you know, it, it might kick off and, you know, we never know. But from the military person's perspective, unless you're a general or a ranking officer, uh, you don't, you kind of just go on business as usual, honestly, because you, you were always kind of at a heightened sense of awareness in the military. Um, you know, we got gate guards that are kind of continually doing the same thing. There's really very little normalization of deviance, right? They, they're always kind of doing what they're supposed to do. And, uh, and so you kind of just go life as usual. Let's go eat. Let's go to sleep. Let's go to the gym. You know, let's go train. And there's an exercise next month. Okay, let's get ready for that. Let's go through the motions with our exercise, our war exercise. And uh, you know, so you know, the current state of events, I I, I don't know uh, personally right now. But uh, you know, back back when I was there, 
it was escalated and uh you know it was no different than it is right now for us right well you mentioned exercise so that's, that's a good tangent coming from within the military and the fire service what is your philosophy in in your profession for entry-level testing as far as physical standards and then a maintenance and an annual test for the firefighters specifically yeah so ben and i were kind of talking about this before we um we know that you're you're big into the you know the health wellness um, of firefighters and fitness and you know, that's fantastic i i uh, anticipated you asking this question but we're going through um kind of a transition period now and so to answer your question there is no specific uh, fitness test required for Air Force firefighters. Uh, now that that's different depending on what base you're at. So again, there's 182 departments, and so each fire chief kind of has the autonomy to decide to decide whether or not they want to institute something like that in their organization. Uh, but um, by and large, there's no standardized process. Not to say that there won't be, because they're in the process of doing it. So for military members, we're required through the Air Force to do an annual uh, fitness test. And that consists of a mile and a half run, push-ups, sit-ups, abdominal circumference, um, and that's it. And uh, and you either, you, you pass or fail, and of course there's a scale. Uh, you have to get over a 75%, and you know each component is, is worth so much percentage of the score, like the run is 60% of the score. Um, and so that's a pretty effective way of keeping people in shape. Now as far as like the functional side of things for firefighters, uh, yeah, the, that's something that we um, they're getting after in, in our career field from the military side. And actually, the civilians are going to do it, too. Um, it's called it's what's called a tier two. So if our annual Air Force assessment is tier one, um, this would be tier two where they put together kind of an, a CPAP obstacle course kind of thing. You go through, um, you know, the functional movements of uh, carrying hose, raising a ladder, things like that um, in your gear. Um, but you know, it, to, to implement something like that for 182 departments, I mean, you're talking about a whole lot of equipment. Uh, you you got to kind of get the process standardized. Then you have to, um, you know, go through the union and make sure that everything is uh, okayed through them. And, um, and so, the, so it, it's in the works. Nothing now. Yeah, I hear that a lot <laughs> from yeah, civilian yeah. and military alike. Um, yeah. well, I hope to see it. I hope to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned the union. Is that a specific military union? Um, ben may be able to help uh, answer this. What is the there, so? There's a couple of different civilian unions, but yeah. yes, so, yeah. Yes, so it, because we are, we have a large civilian population in the in the Air Force Fire Service. You know, we're we're totally about fifty percent military, but then. The rest are split up between U.S. civilians and foreign nationals, and it's most of that pie is U.S. Um, you know U.S. citizens serving at departments on the state side, um, and and I don't pretend to know much or, or all for sure about the civilian side of things, but with the unions, um, it's just like a normal fire department in that regard, where they are um, able to have some representation from. Uh, unions, and that could be the IAFF or um, AFGE or another union, depending on their location. Um, I do know that the unions cannot bargain certain things. Pay, I believe, is one of them because it's set uh, at rates determined by the DOD. But working conditions and some other things um, are potentially in their wheelhouse to be able to bargain. Right. Well, I know you, that we mentioned this, I think, that when when we discussed it before. I forget it was on the phone or, or – uh, 
over email, but um, you know, one thing that you've probably heard that I'm very passionate about is just the work week in general, and you know, the the civilian um, dynamic I think is a little different because of the huge leaning on the EMS side of a lot of departments. Um, what is your what does your work week or shift cycle look like? Um, but then, you know, what are the what is the kind of workload that you're normally responding to? So, Air Force Fire Service typically works. Um, a 72 hour per week um, standard work schedule, obviously on the operations side, um, which 72 hours a week is probably seems high to maybe you and many of your listeners. Um, you know, a normal work week might be 56, 60 hours on the outside. So 72 hours a week, um, I would say a large portion of our department still work a 24 on, 24 off schedule with one Kelly day every other week. So one time in two weeks, you get a non-standard day off, um, making three days total day off. So it's it's uh, substantially involved, you know, to be an Air Force firefighter, you're there quite a bit. Um, some of our departments have moved to a 48-hour shift schedule, um, but they're still working 72 hours a week. They're just there two days, and then they're off two days. And there's there's different variations that they've come up with. The pay and benefits to the civilians are probably a large driving force to that, uh, to maintain it at least. And then of course, you know, like everybody, manning, budget cuts, you know, ability to recruit and retain, those are all, those are all influence the ability to have, you know, a two platoon shift instead of a three platoon shift that would maybe allow for less overall hours per week. We are blessed in the fact that our mission set, we are really good at prevention and risk management. And so our mission set doesn't really call for us to be awake at night too often. I won't say it never happens and it's definitely base by base. Uh, The installations I've been at, we typically get to sleep through the night, I'd say most of the time. Um, But, you know, we've had total Air Force wide this year up until one September, we've, we've, we're sitting around 42,000 calls air force wide. So between 182 departments, um, I don't know what the, the math breaks down to, and it's definitely going to be higher at some locations than others. But, um, I'd say that is going to work out less than the FDNY. <laughs> yes. No, I would say significantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's, it's just interesting because I mean, there is, there, there are, Station dynamics where you can get away with a, a higher work week. The problem is there's this kind of blanket thing where, you know, you've got men and women in a lot of these municipal departments. I've, I've worked in several of them where you're up 24 hours. I mean, you might, you might see your bed momentarily for an hour, two hours, whatever, but even then you're not sleeping. And so it's an interesting dynamic within the Air Force because you have the fire service. And, and if you're sleeping almost every night to the point where, you know, you can actually relax because the, the calls will be once in a blue moon. Um, that's probably doable. But then you've got the the airmen and women who are, you know, flying these these multi million billion dollar machines, um, where I'm sure they're held at very, very stringent sleep standards because of, of the understanding of sleep medicine and, and acuity and, and the uh the possibility of mistakes being made. Yeah, I think, you know, people underestimate sleep and the importance of it. And even within our service and not having 
you know, most of our installations have calls every night, all day long. Um, I, I, w- I would venture to bet, and this has just been Perry's personal guess, that there are, there are uh, maybe a significant number of firefighters in the, in the Air Force that's, that maybe have similar sleep disorders and, and fatigue um, similar to what municipal firefighters may have. And I, and I believe it's to do with the shift work itself, um, you know, up to, up to a point where it, even though we're having less calls, we're still, you know, you're, you're in that kind of lighter sleep. If you are sleeping, you're not, you're not getting deep rest. Um, and then when you are interrupted, of course, that's going to take away from that. And then with us, you know, I could be at work, um, at 7am for shift change 12 days in a row. So I never have a day to sleep in or take the night off or unload if, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. I think that's the, the element is some of these stations that, you know, are kind of middle ground, they sleep sometimes or they may get one call. You're still not getting that quality sleep. So even though you come home and you told your wife, Oh, I didn't have a call last night or I just had one. And they're like, well, why are you so tired? It was because, you know, the, the, the understanding that you're never going to get into that deep restorative sleep cycle when you've got one eye open waiting for a call. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm, I'm excited for this tier two fitness to come around to the meshing of, you know, an increased level of fitness capacity in our airmen, along with, you know, what can we do to sleep better? Um, I think the the combination of these elements is going to lead to less injuries and, and less fatigue, less you know, potential vehicle accidents and so many other ancillary things. Yeah. I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Janelle McCauley on, who's, um, you know, from the Air Force, and she's the, one of the human performance people within the special operations space. So, again, it's, it's interesting, you know, we have these members of the tactical population in the military side that have such a, an incredible understanding of sleep, nutrition, you know, rehab and all these areas. And then you look into the municipal police fire EMS and it's, it's like night and day. And it's, it blows me away that we can't just cross pollinate with, you know, and say, okay, we don't need to have research within the fire service, the air force, the army, the, you know, the, the Navy, they're doing the same exact thing. Why can't we learn from le- their investment and their research and their lessons and apply it to, to our professions? Yeah, for sure. Right. Well, the same kind of uh, area for you, Matt, with the the physical testing and then the um, the uh, the sleep. First, with the physical, in an ideal world, what would it look like in the uh, in the Air Force firefighting arena for an annual test? What would you like to see? Uh, are you talking to specific events or just kind of an all overall? Just an overall um, ability requirement to maintain the the position. Yeah, some obviously some kind of you know cardiovascular component, um, heavy lifting, with with gear on. Um, I personally haven't taken which. No, that's not right. So in in when I was in the academy, they did what's called firefighter PT is what they called it. So physical training, um, and it was just something that they did. And this is back in the day. I want to say pre Ben can, can correct me if I'm wrong. 2013 or so. Um, they used to do what's called firefighter PT, where you kind of go through events, you hit, um, you climb ladders, you pull hose, um, you, um, sledgehammer like a tire and all these different things in gear and outside of gear, um, with SCBA and, and so something something like that I think is definitely necessary, um, and, and at least annually, uh, and and that's the, that's the direction we're headed with 
with tier two. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And with tier one, I meant to ask you as well, you mentioned it was the run, the sit-ups, the, the push-ups, and then the, um, the waist measurement. How effective has that simple test been at maintaining a good level of overall wellness in, in the Air Force? Um, you know, I guess opinions vary on this. So uh, what ends up happening with, with a lot of people, well, you know, and this is my opinion, right? This isn't like a scientific fact or anything from, from my, um, from my perspective anyways, they end up preparing, you know, two, three months ahead of time when they know their test is coming around. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, eight months of the year, eight, nine months out of the year, they're, they're not necessarily preparing. And so in that sense, um, it, it's not as effective as it could be. Now, do I have an answer to make it better? No, but, uh, but it is, it is effective to an extent. Right. Um, and, and I think that I I forgot where I read this in a class that I, that I took some time ago that, uh, you know, it's the most basic way of evaluating, uh, physical capabilities with a mile and a half run push-ups, sit-ups, and you could throw pull-ups in there in some cases, but we don't do that in the air force. Um, the Marine Corps does pull-ups and actually planks too. Um, but it's the most basic and, um, cost effective way to evaluate fitness. And that's another element of this, right? You're talking about, you're talking about 300, uh, 300 to 400,000 airmen across the enterprise that you have to, you know, put through this test annually. And and in some cases every six months, because if you get below a certain threshold, like 90%, you got to take it every six months. And so, from an effectiveness standpoint, it's very effective, right? And from a logistical standpoint, I should say, it's very effective because you need a track and you need concrete to do push-ups on and then you need a measuring tape, you know? Um, and and I've learned for myself personally that it, it, I'm kind of intrinsically motivated to be in good shape. And so uh, I, I could do without the annual test personally, but uh, but it does it does help me focus on that cardiovascular element more Whereas I would get in the gym and maybe lift weights um, instead. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you touched on, um, you said the word airman too. And the reason why that popped up to me is I, I just finished writing a book. And um, I forget in what context now, but I mentioned, you know, soldiers, sailors and, and airmen. And uh, my editor said, well, you know, you might want to see if there's a politically correct term for that. And when I researched it, that's what it's, it's, you know, what you guys use. And, and I recently had done, uh, uh, an interview with a firefighter, a fire chief in London who was actually the chief at the Grenfell fire. And some guy had, had shared the episode. He said, but I'm, you know, the, the, the host kept using the word fireman. This is 2020. He needs to get with the program. So I'm like, well, to me, you know, again, I don't, that, that's purely, you know, I don't focus on labels, you know, if you're that focused that you missed the entire two hour conversation and that's what you got out of it, then you probably, you know, need to go do some self-reflection. But that, that aside, you know, there are some people that can, you know, that argue over these, these names, these labels. So, um, I just want to clarify. So when you say airman, that is the accepted term for the men and women in the air force. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And I've honestly, I've never heard the conversation, um, that, you know, Hey, we, we probably should call them air women. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong or anything, but, uh, yeah, airmen is airmen's used synonymous, synonymously, uh, among every demographic, you know? So I think a few months ago they did a, they did a review cause they, you know, they diversity and inclusion is a, is a large topic in the military right now. And they did a, a review on a few of our, um, historical documents or song and, you know, 
uh, creed and things like that. And I believe that the term airman was, was looked at, but they, they decided to stick with it for heritage purposes and, uh, didn't feel like it was disparaging to use. Yeah. Well, I think even the seals just, um, had an issue with, with that too. I think their, their creed or, or their job description or whatever it was, something mm-hmm. was held. And I, th- I believe, um, you know, President Trump actually had worked to reverse that. But to me, when you're having that conversation, you've missed diversity, you've missed inclusion because that's semantics. You know, inclusion is, right. you know, creating an environment that allows men and women to thrive equally, you know, but mm-hmm. you set the bar equally as well. So I think if you find yourself arguing over that, you've completely missed the point by that point. Yeah, what's important is intent, right? Or how you treat people. Like how, wh- what's my intent when I'm saying something? If I say airman, do I intend to exclude women? No, you know, I'm I'm talking about everybody when I say airman. So yeah, and that that um, I think you said creed that seal creed is uh, Jocko actually. I think he did a podcast or he talked about it that he actually is the one that developed it. Well, he and you know some other seal officers. So yeah, I bet he's happy about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, then I wanted just to touch on on the Middle East before we go to some uh, some another area which is transitioning out. But um, uh, that's obviously where where in a majority of the the combat or operations are being seen at the moment. So, what does the the air force? Excuse me. The the um, yeah the air force firefighter look like within you know Afghanistan or Iraq, for example. Mm-hmm. I could talk a little bit on this and then you know see what Ben has to say. I can say that. Uh, you know, the big focus in the Department of Defense is um, uh, preparing for a near-peer adversary, which is, you know, Russia, Iran, uh, and Korea. So uh, so a lot of our focus is on that. Now, there's, I'm not saying that we're still not dealing with um, insurgent groups in places like um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, because I'm sure that kind of stuff's going on. But uh, from an Air Force firefighter's perspective, there's very, there's very few of us um, left in those countries. Now, we do go there, and they are there right now. I don't want to say they're not, uh, but there's not too many of us. Most of us are in the Middle East. We are, um, you know, we're in places like uh, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates and, and stuff like that. And kind of um, posturing for Iran and, and, you know, just being ready for that near peer um, conflict. Uh, and, and there are contractors out there that are in a, a handful of these places, too. Uh, life's a little bit different. Um, for an Air Force firefighter in the Middle East, uh, although I think we're probably similar or in more ways than we are different than if we're CONUS or um, stateside or in garrison. Um, so uh, the difference is, I guess, your I don't want to say you're training less, but uh, it's, it's a bit more austere. Um, you don't have hydrant systems, right? You, uh, yeah, so you have to think about those kind of things. You have to place your water, uh, at strategic places throughout, uh, throughout your area of responsibility. When I say place water, I mean, put tanks up, construct tanks, uh, with pumps so that, um, you can, you know, set up a relay out there or whatever. And so, you know, you, Hey, you got 5,000 gallons or 10,000 gallons, you know, and that's it. So you got to be very smart about how you use your water. You have to be smart about how you use your air and your uh, breathing cylinders, um, stuff like that. And then of course you have to contend with some of the force protection measures. Uh, some, in some cases you have to contend with, uh, the threat of chemical warfare. Um, and so we deploy with, um, protective clothing that we have to wear underneath our firefighting protective ensemble. 
Uh, it's called JS List, Joint Service uh, Light Integrated something suit technology. That's what JS List stands for. Um, and so we, we wear that underneath and then put our gear on top. And we have a whole different SCBA kind of configuration with our mask where we have to plug in a hose to a, to a, a predetermined spot on our SCBA mask that has a cylinder on the end of it. Um, and so life as a, uh, as a deployed Air Force firefighter is different um, in a few ways, similar in a lot of ways, but it's, uh, it's pretty tough. Uh, and that's why, that's why uh, we only go over there for short periods of time. I would say um, another um, element to it too, Matt, is um, you know when you're when you're stateside or or even overseas in Germany or Korea, um, if if something gets too big to handle, you've got uh, resources at your disposal for mutual aid, where that's not so much of an option out in the desert, and that's uh, that's always on my mind when you're out there. Is you know you're all you've got between the the folks on duty and then maybe a recall of the the folks who might be taking the some time off um, on their normal shift off but but between those two groups of folks you, you know that's it and your trucks are typically a few years older in in some locations and um, so your your risk management gets a little different I, I feel like out there um, but otherwise yeah I think um, just like Matt said, it's uh, it's a pretty unique environment that um, I think is one of the most growing environments that I've ever been put in is to work out in a place like that. And, I, and I've not been to Afghanistan or Iraq, someplace where the threat of bodily harm is, is imminent. Um, but Matt and I actually met uh, while deployed out in uh, Qatar a handful of years ago. Okay, I was going to ask you that. So so how did, how did you meet and how did you... Um you know, then foster a relationship that ultimately led to the podcast. Matt? Yeah, we met while we were stationed in uh, IED to Air Base in Qatar. Uh, we were on the same shift there. And, and, and we stayed connected through the years, just like you do, um, if, you know, most people that you meet in, in Air Force fire protection, and, and a lot of Air Force firefighters can attest to this. But, man, we, we're connected to so many people, whether, you know, through social media, especially now, um, that you just know so many people all over the world. And, you know, Ben is, is one of, uh, of many friends and, uh, you know, we, we got along pretty well. So we have a bit of a closer relationship. Um, and you know, we just stayed connected through social media and then we went to, a a, a training class was it December of last year. Um, it's called the, um, air force fire protection superintendent course. So, it, you know, kind of teaching you how to uh, be in charge of a fire department as a military member. And, uh, yeah, we saw each other there again and, uh, you know, then long story short, we, uh, created a podcast together and, you know, it's been, it's been around since February, um, uh, of this year. So, uh, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to the podcast in a minute, but while we were on the Middle East subject, um, a few years ago, one of the big things obviously for the American fire service was the potential for contract firefighting. And I was always curious when you have, you know, military firefighters and you have obviously local firefighters as well, how that came about. So do you, do you know what the history was that they were bringing people over from the U S? Um, yeah, I guess I'll go on that one. Um, so I, I don't know much about the history for contract firefighting. <clears throat> I, I assume that it's a, a cost effective means. Um, of 
you know, of having that capability. It, it, it takes a lot to, to put military members, uh, into, uh, area of responsibility like the middle East <clears throat> and to do it over a couple decades, you know, um, the cost starts to add up a bit. And I want to say that contract firefighting probably started late, uh, two thousands or so, but you know, I could be wrong on that. So anyways, uh, aside from the fact that it's a cost effective way for the department of defense to kind of do business, you know, I, I don't know much more about the history. Any, anything to add Ben? No, I, I, I as well don't know uh, much about the contract firefighting. I know it exists and I know, uh, some members as they transition out of the military will take those opportunities if they exist and, uh, maybe go serve six months or a year overseas in, in a contract capacity. Cause it's, uh, potentially lucrative for them, uh, because the overhead of the military environment is not, not so much. And so that gives more money for them to maybe put in their pocket. So, um, but aside from that, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know much about the contract side. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I had one of my friends, Jason Wheat, was on a while ago now, but he actually did it for a year. So he gave me a kind of insider perspective, but I was just curious about how it came about. Um, okay, so one more area I want to talk about before we go to the podcast and some closing questions. Um, transitioning out. So, you know, that's something that we talk about a lot on here with members of the military. You know, some people find it easy. Some people obviously struggle. But with you having you know, the, the profession already under your belt, what do you see the success of men and women transitioning out of the Air Force fire service specifically into municipal positions? So I think um, the skill set that we gain is second to none in the, in the Air Force, uh, especially reg with regard to our training. Um, we have an outstanding uh, fire academy, in my opinion. And uh, we, we come out with a lot of certifications and um, courses that uh, you, you may not see quite as much on the civilian side. Um, where that teeter-totter will balance a little bit is our experience. Um, you know, I've already alluded to our call volume might not be what it is at the FDNY. So, you know, someone else with maybe the same years of service may have, you know, twice, three times as many calls. Um, to kind of reflect back on and build their experience. And so I think just between the, the training and experience portfolios that each of us have as individuals and then combining that with mindset, attitude, and uh, drive to get out and actually look for opportunities that, that fit their skill sets, you know, because not everybody um, is going to get out and become a fireman. They may have something related to the emergency response system, you know, being – dispatching, you know, emergency management, uh, something in local government, who knows. Um, and then some people may get out and do something completely different um, that has nothing to do with fire. And, uh, but those that, that do seek opportunities in the fire department, I, I think they'll find themselves well set up for it. You know, most of us, by the time we retire, even after 20 years, we're young enough to probably go in and, and have a role in the fire department um, whereas, you know, someone else that has had another career and maybe retires when they're 50 or 60, they're probably on the upper cusp of being able to do that. And Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, I would say I've, I have seen, you know, so far in my time, a lot of people transition out of the military and, uh, I have seen some go to municipal fire departments and by and large, I would say they're always successful. Like Ben, uh, said, uh, the, the Air Force or the Department of Defense, um, they set 
they set firefighters up for success. Uh, they, we have a pretty rigorous training regimen, um, you know, because, because our call volume isn't that of our, you know, municipal, municipal neighbors, we have to train, um, more often. Right. And so we, we have this, uh, so you have this foundation of professionalism and discipline. Uh, you've been trained a whole lot and, and very well in, in, in most cases. And then you go to your departments where they have a pretty rigorous training regimen. And then there's, uh, the always encouraging continuing education. So, I mean, where I'm at now, every single one of my firefighters just about is, uh, is involved in some kind of continuing education. And so my point is that, uh, they, we were set up very well professionally to be successful outside um, of the military and the air force uh, does a very good job of making sure that's the case. Like they, when you're set to transition out, they put you through a, a week long course and, you know, teach you how to make a resume and make you wear a suit to class and, um, just a bunch of different things. And, uh, so the people that I've seen transition out for the most part do very well. And I have seen firefighters transition out and get hired onto municipal departments and be successful. Beautiful. Now, speaking of that transitioning out, the, the mental health element, just in general, you know, obviously some, some firefighters are going to see, you know, see, uh, some pretty horrific stuff, whether it's in combat, whether it's just, you know, accidents in, in, uh, peacetime areas. Um, what is the, the kind of mental health, uh, arm of the Air Force? Well, how does that look compared to, you know, I'm not compared to anything. How, how, what kind of support do you guys have when it comes to mental health? The support is incredible. It's, uh, it's very progressive. I mean, they are, they're on top of it. Um, you know, and I haven't necessarily experienced kind of what a Vietnam veteran, I guess, or a, a world war two veteran with shell shock or something experienced, but I can say that there our culture uh, in air force specifically is one that you can go forward if you have a problem and there is no reprisal or unless you have some kind of, you know, top secret, um, clearance, then in some cases they have to pull those, um, or, you know, you're tied to sensitive things in some way. But, uh, beyond that, there's little to no reprisal for going forward if you have an issue. And there's, there's little to no judgment from your peers. If you go forward with an issue, it's kind of, uh, it, it's kind of just understood that, you know, uh, you know, everybody is going through something and you don't always know what they're going through. And, you know, they, they could be going through some kind of struggle and that they need professional attention. Um, and that's okay. And, and, you know, so, so I would say my answer is that it's a, it's very progressive and it's a very good system. The air force does an outstanding job, like Matt said, of making sure the tools are there, making sure that people know that the tools are there. Um, I'd say there's a couple of factors that, um, you know, we could, I won't say that we could work on because it's not like we're not trying, but that could be different. And that's really access to certain providers. Um, and that's not, the military is not limiting access. It's the ability to actually get providers into the military system. Um, there, there are a, a number, you know, so many providers out there of all sorts of mental um, and behavioral health 
capacities, but um, we always need more. We have a ton of people and, you know, the world's ever evolving. And so as, as new challenges come up, um, new people have those challenges and it may be, maybe yesterday this person didn't have any need for mental health access. And so we we're basing our manning numbers off of, you know, so many visits and as new needs arise, we need to adjust with those needs and make sure we have the proper number of uh, mental health professionals available. And that's, you know, air force wide, not just in the fire service. Um, I, I think the quality of the providers is, has been outstanding in my experience, both for, for the military members, uh, but also the, our families, you know, a lot of family members take advantage of those resources that are available as well. Right now with, with as far as the, the providers being within a network, um, is that all included in TRICARE then? So, yeah, the way our, you know, the military's system works, and this is kind of across the board between all the services is if the military member has a, a condition that, you know, a on-base military doctor or, you know, or a civilian doctor within the military hospital on base, um, that's, that's typically where you'll go get seen first. Um, with dependents, it's, it's maybe different depending on the, the type of setup you have where they'll be referred off base or they may be seen on base. Um, but they, the on-base providers, I would say, by and large, are there for the active duty military member. Um, and so your mental health professionals, sometimes you'll find uh, some on base and they are there to work with post-deployment debriefings and pre-deployment training and, and things of that nature. Um, but I would say your your day-to-day needs um, in some places are, are met by off-base providers that do service through the TRICARE network. Right. Because you mentioned about the barrier of, of entry sometimes being the, you know, the, the number of counselors, which again, I'm sure there's a lot of counselors, but it's the ones that are actually have the training to be able to, to understand what members of the military or first responder professions actually go through as, as a different kind of professional. But what I find is another really, really tragic, in my opinion, um, barrier to entry in the civilian world is the insurance system. So you might have an incredible provider near you, but you know, you're, you're having an issue, you're, you know, hitting time, hard times financially. You might not be able to pay out of pocket for that person and they might not be in your network, you know. So the, what's nice to hear about the, the military is at least that one barrier has been removed. Yeah, we are absolutely blessed to be able to seek uh, medical, mental, um, spiritual um, assistance through the, the ingrained processes and uh, resources that we have in the military and they don't cost anything you know, the majority of the time, occasionally, um, some medical things might have some cost, but by and large they don't. And so the, you're absolutely right that that, that barrier to get in to seek help is not there. Um, we still have more to go though, to encourage people to get out and talk to, talk to folks and really, dig down at what their problems may be. You know, in the, in the Air Force in the last two years, we've seen record numbers of suicides. Um, again, not within the fire service, but the Air Force as a whole. And um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's getting better, um, just naturally on its own. So, um, we got to stay creative, stay focused on plugging people into these resources and making them feel comfortable enough to go to them. Absolutely. Matt, anything to add? Yeah. I just want to make sure that I mentioned that I, you know, there, there is, yeah, there's like Ben mentioned that statistic that air force has, uh, more suicides than ever before. Just last year was the highest ever, um, in, in a long time. If, if ever, I, I believe, uh, the, yeah, the problems exist with these airmen and some of these airmen are firefighters. And I've personally known, um, firefighters during my time that have taken their lives. And, uh, I, I mentioned that it's progressive and it's a fantastic system. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the people have to seek it out. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we have to continue to work on our culture, uh, at, at encouraging people to, to seek those, um, seek that service out and to be able to identify, um, problems in people too. So we have to continually talk to build relationships with, create a culture, um, surrounding, um, mental health. It's okay to seek, um, it's okay to seek service for it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think if, if it was framed the way it should be, which is mental health counseling creates a more resilient, you know, airman, firefighter, police officer, whatever it is. So it's no different than strength training or chiropractic or anything else. I think it would really change the the view. But sadly, our generation was raised on the, you know, rub some dirt in it, you know, um, McDonald's is hiring kind of <laughs> philosophy that was always the kickback to to anything back in, you know, my early career. So I think we needed <laughs> right. we need to change that culture. And then, like you said, the the barriers to entry. I'm this is my own personal opinion, but coming from the UK, watching national health is you know, is it absolutely perfect? Of course not, but overall Everyone having access to physical health care, to mental health care, you know, it's no different than, than TRICARE. I think that, you know, would be another huge push for the, you know, the, the, the population as a whole is removing as many of those barriers to entry for, for the preventative stuff. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to be burying suicide, you know, um, people who have completed suicide. We want to be preventing it before it happens. Yes, sir. Right. Well, then transitioning to the podcast. So what made you guys suddenly want to do that? Not suddenly, but, you know, what was the genesis of the podcast? Uh, so, again, me and Ben, we, we met in a class or we, you know, we went to a class together in December of 2019. And I, our uh, career field manager, who is um, <clears throat> and he is the, you know, the ranking individual for all Air Force firefighters. Uh, I had this idea to start a podcast. Um, I'm a big consumer of podcasts. I think that it's a fantastic medium to, for open dialogue and to kind of just, uh, it's a, it's just another place to learn. Right. And, um, and you could listen to them while you're working out. I was like, man, this is, uh, this is kind of an untapped medium for, uh, air force firefighters. You know, you know, why doesn't something like that exist? Cause there, we have a lot of young people. Um, our demographic, our average age is probably, around 30, if not lower than that, it might even be closer to like 28, 27, but it's very, very young. Uh, and we're expected to do a, we're expected to do and know a whole lot. And you can only get after so much of that with self study, um, and with lack of experience. Um, and you know, you can only get after that so much with the experience that you get. And so here's just another medium to, to be able to help air force firefighters. And so, uh, I pitched the idea and, you know, 
the boss said, yeah, I mean, go after it, try it out. And then Ben is incredibly technic technically gifted. Um, you know, he mentioned that, I don't know if you mentioned this, yeah, that he, that he worked on computers prior to joining the, the military. And, uh, so yeah, he was kind of the perfect partner to, to team up and he had the passion for it just like I did. And, and so, yeah, in February we kicked this thing off and we're, uh, what, 32 episodes in, um, you know, yeah. we have kind of a niche of a kind of a niche of listeners. It's a very specific to air force fire protection, but we've had, uh, you know, over 10,000 downloads since February. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the whole intent was to share information and share stories with other DOD firefighters that would kind of help them be better. And to connect firefighters to one another too, right? So it's, it's a way to not only influence them in a one directional conversation, but to start conversations and have people talk about it, you know, in the various methods of, you know, either at the firehouse table or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever platform they may use. We want to come to them, but we want them to talk to each other. Um, and I think that's an important element of it. Yeah. Uh, Matt, we're sitting right over 12,000 episodes. I think the last time we checked, we've reached 52 countries. And for for our niche demographic, like you said, I it's a, it's a pretty incredible and, and humbling uh, experience to be able to um, – come up here and just facilitate a conversation because, uh, you know, like me and Matt have said a couple of times on our show. And then before we kicked off here, we are not, uh, representing air force fire in an official capacity as far as, you know, Ben and Matt are the spokespeople for air force fire. We, we just, um, happen to be two guys, uh, two of 11,000 plus folks that have a passion for this job and, um, want to see others develop their passion and understanding around the job beautiful yeah and it's amazing the medium you know while, while this whole pandemic thing's been going on you know i've been able to put out more content than usual so the the efficiency of the podcast to and to remove the the filter you know that we see so much in regular media i think really really allows people over the the planet to just hear a, an honest conversation so have you had any kind of um feedback that that's that resonated with you I've, uh, I've personally received a whole lot of positive feedback. There's been, you know, a couple criticisms that, that and we're working on making it better because we, Ben and I are firefighters, you know, we're military members. We're not, I'm, um, I'm a very introverted person, right? And anybody that knows me knows that I don't talk a lot. And, and so it doesn't necessarily make sense that, that me, I, I be a host on a podcast, right? Uh, and so there's things that we need to work on to be better, like, uh, I guess, radio people, but, um, but overall there's a, there's a, there is a, a, a hunger for, for this kind of way of consuming information within air force fire protection. And so it's a whole lot of positive feedback, like, man, I can't believe this didn't exist before. And, well, that episode was fantastic. I learned things that, you know, I never knew, you know, and I'm an E8 and I've been around for 20 years in, in the air force. And, and so yeah, I think that overall it's very successful, but you know, we had a lot of room for improvement and we long way to go. I'm sure it'll be much better uh, if, if we can get somebody else on board with us who can, you know, maybe add in a little creativity because we got a few uh, weaknesses, Ben and I, um, but you know, we, we hope that this is, we kind of created a legacy 
that we can, you know, package up and pass on one day uh, when, when we leave the career field. Yeah. And one of the feedback pieces that um, we got kind of uh, a handful of months ago was, uh, was, you know, folks hitting us up in the messenger saying, I, I loved the, this episode. Uh, you know, I love to hear about this topic. Where can I go find more? Or, uh, you know, would you be willing to talk about it? And that kind of got us thinking at the time, you know, while this is a great one directional medium, um, we'd love to kind of facilitate the conversation in the, in a mentorship way and really open it up to have people connect with each other going back to kind of how this got started. It's just another layer of communication. And so, um, the podcast, um, you know, branding, if you will, kind of opened up a, a mentorship group and you know, we've got uh, close to 700 air force firefighters in there right now. Um, and, some of them are, are definitely connecting to, to each other directly, um, you know, talking to each other out in the, in the kind of public spaces. And it's just nice to see folks hungry for that development. Um, yeah, the, the positive feedback that we've gotten has been overwhelming. Um, and selfishly, um, this has been, I think, the most enlightening to me. Um, just getting a chance to sit down and talk with our career field manager, the Air Force Fire Chief, a couple of, you know, uh, higher ranking enlisted folks in the Air Force, um, just opportunities that, you know, the, the average Joe firefighter like us doesn't normally have. And so it's been uh, developing for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, I, I look at my um, list of people that have been on and I'm just blown away that these people said yes. <laughs> I can totally relate. Um, but you mentioned about um, working on stuff. I think that's another area is – for me as well there there are you know so many podcasts that are more polished that have you know great music great sound they have a little you know music playing while they're talking in the background all this kind of stuff but at the end of the day it's about the content about the honesty of the conversation mm -hmm. so we you know obviously mm -hmm. there's things that i'm trying to improve and, and little tweaks but but to me you know presentation production you know full second to just having a good conversation with someone yeah, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that because Ben and I have that conversation often. There's nothing more important than content, right? And having um, honest content and, you know, yeah, everything else is kind of just icing on the cake, you know, like you appreciate good sound quality and, and things like that. Um, when I say there's ways to improve, um, Ben and I have a, have a way of thinking, you know, that and I, I know that there's other ideas for, let's say, uh, guests or content or, or ways to improve the podcast in those ways, not necessarily. And then, of course, we want to be good at facilitating conversations because we want the podcast to be engaging and we want people to want to listen to it. And so when I say improvements, I mean me being kind of a facilitator, a host, being a good host, making sure that I uh, ask engaging questions and make sure that I ask honest questions, right? And, and getting getting the things out of the guest that uh, you know that the listener wants to hear. So that's what I mean by that. And Ben is really, he's focused on the, um, the technical piece of it, the post-production. Um, and he's always trying to improve in that. And he's, he's already very, very good at it. Um, but yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no second to the face-to-face -face one, but um, I mean, it's amazing what you can do over the internet now as well. All right. Well, then, for people listening um, that are intrigued, where can they find the the podcast and then any websites and obviously the Facebook page as well? 
So folks can go over to our our kind of primary hub for everything is Facebook at this point. So you can go to facebook.com forward slash the fire dog podcast. And that's going to be spelled T-H-E-F-I-R-E-D-A-W-G podcast. And you can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google podcasts, anywhere where you can find your normal podcasts at. Beautiful. And then that mentoring um, platform is within that Facebook page as well. It is. Yeah. We, we uh, kind of reserve that for Air Force firefighters, um, typically uh, as kind of a closed network. But, uh, you know, if there are any Air Force firefighters out there listening, we'd love to have you in that group as well. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, and I'll, I'll ask each of you, um, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or something completely different. So let's start with Matt. Yeah, I got two books that really transformed the way I think. And, you know, I'm sure they've been mentioned quite a few times in your, with your guests. But the first one is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Um, man, that talk about an eye-opening perspective on the world, just taking extreme ownership and absolutely everything that you come in contact with. It really has transformed the way that I kind of, you know, look at life. And then the second one is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Um, and you know, that is kind of the same thing. It's just like there, there is no excuse to, for anything, you know, whatever happens to you in life, you have to, um, you know, you have to face it and, and overcome it. Right. And, and it's kind of how you respond in life to things. So those two books for me. Beautiful. Ben. Yeah. So I'll, I'll jump on the Jocko Ben wagon as well. Um, his book, Leadership, Strategy, and Tactics. I've never finished a book that I was more kind of like open jaw, like flabbergasted with. And the reason I was with this one, um, I don't think there's anything special about it. It doesn't contain magic recipes or anything, but it's it's useful in ways that other books are not in a, in a reference manual sort of way almost. And you can say, I'm dealing with problem X. I can open this book and I can find an, a 90% solution to problem X. And so it, it's really been useful to, to reference back to, and I'm actually going to give a copy of this book to every subordinate I have from here on out, just as a, a point of reference, like, Hey, if I'm ever screwing with you, um, and, and you don't know what to do, look in this book. If you've got a problem, look in this book. Of course, talk to me but or talk to whoever, but start you know, start with this book. I think it's got a lot of good things. Um, another book I, I've read recently was uh, Fortitude by Dan Crenshaw. Um, just a good perspective, I think, on uh, mindfulness, little little take on stoicism um, and just kind of stopping and thinking before we we – either give up or get angry, um, I think is an important one. Uh, any books by Malcolm Gladwell? I think he's a rock star that puts out great books. And then I'm halfway through this one book called One More Light by James Gearing. <laughs> you got it? I do. Yeah, really? <laughs> I do. And it's, I'm about halfway through it and uh, excellent so far. So when I, when I get done, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. Please do. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so then the next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Uh, for me, uh, movies, uh, I would say nothing that's <laughs> um, 
nothing that you wouldn't find on Netflix probably or documentaries. Um, lately I've just been reading, um, podcasts, journals, um, in, in lieu of a movie, I'll offer the firemanship journal, um, journal for firemen. I think you can find it at firemanshipdays.com. Um, great little, uh, 20 minute read, uh, once a quarter, but, uh, inspiring. Beautiful. Yeah. I think one of my blogs was in there uh, probably a couple of years ago now. So yeah, it's a great, uh, publication. All right. Um, and then, uh, Matt, same question. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily, I don't watch too many movies, uh, but the, the ones that really stick with me and resonate, I'm a student of history. And so I, I love anything that has to do with history and, and, war american wars wars that america was involved with um so you know shows like band of brothers um really you know hit home with me and then you know i'm a consumer of netflix documentaries you know jeffrey epstein and social dilemma and stuff like that all those are very interesting to me yeah social dilemma was incredible yeah yeah it was uh eye-opening you know it, it makes you it makes you almost want to get rid of social media there's a lot of good about social media but man it's uh, surprising to see kind of how much we're manipulated. Yes. And then you think about children, it's, it's actually terrifying. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't imagine growing up with social media. and uh, God, wouldn't that be terrible? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what that does to your mind. And yeah. So anyways, yeah, I, I feel for, I'm empathetic for kids um, today. And, you know, being attached to social media, I'm, I'm going to think about it with my kids on whether or not they get a social media account hopefully some of this stuff will get ironed out by the time they're old enough but yeah well my uh my ex allowed my son to have instagram about a year ago much much to the opposition of me and it was an absolute shit show so i took it away <laughs> so i can attest <laughs> having a sample that had no no social media and one that did and yeah it was, it was oh, right absolutely yes yes yeah yeah that'd be interesting study yeah no i mean it's yeah it's you think about it the the element of the disjointed reality, the perception of what attractive, successful, wealthy through social media, and you know, as adults, you know, it's complete, mm -hmm. you know, facade. There's no realism to it. Even, I mean, right. look, look at even a lot of the famous people that we thought were, you know, high on life and they ended up having addictions and, you know, depression, all these things. So yeah, there's, there's, it's an amazing tool, but it's being abused, you know, incredibly at the moment. Right. And yeah, our primal minds can't, uh, can't necessarily keep up, you know, what, what we know to be, I guess, fake with filters and other things, uh, our minds kind of tell us different, you know, and it's just, it's really incredible documentary. Yeah. Our minds and the, the documentary catfish should have been a warning as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then, um, next question then we'll keep with you, Matt. Uh, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? So I'll mention a guy named Dave Wurzel. We had him on one of our episodes. He's the founder, um, CEO, First 20. It's a, a nonprofit organization focused on firefighter fitness, health, and resiliency. A uh, really great guy. Um, and, you know, kind of his sole purpose in life is to uh, to improve firefighter fitness, health, and, and resiliency. And uh, another guy, I don't know if you had him on, Jason Patton. Uh, he's the Fire Department Chronicles guy and Fire Department Coffee. I just think He's a funny dude, and it'd be you know it'd be cool to listen to him talk open forum. I did actually, yeah. He's actually not too far oh, from okay. me. He's uh, South Florida, so yeah. That, oh, cool. We did one a while ago. Actually, probably do oh, another one at some point. Then. Yeah, I have to listen to it. Yeah, great guy. All right, well, Ben, same question. Um, so, so we recently had an episode on our show, um, kind of about physiology and and um, 
firefighter fitness and stuff and, and a book that was mentioned on there called on combat with uh, lieutenant colonel retired dave grossman um if you haven't had him on the show yet definitely should think about it his material is great and i think you guys would have an excellent conversation yeah we've been had two already oh perfect yes right. <laughs> now i actually want to get him on again as well i think uh his observation of this last year i think would be interesting you know between the the pandemic isolation element and you know the the violence that we've seen in some small pockets of america that is by far you know detached from most of america but yeah it'd be an interesting conversation to reflect on 2020 with him yeah, yeah, I think he's had some criticism actually uh, with the with all the events going on. There's been some critics of him and things that he said. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear him talk again on what's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, I know he's even on the show. He made a couple of comments that you know some people didn't receive well. But I mean, to mm-hmm. me, that's the issue: is if you're expecting a whiter than white version of someone, then you're not getting the real person. And the real person, right. you know, if you discard ninety percent of their work because of ten percent that you don't like, then we're never going to move forward either. Right. right. So, all right. Well, then, uh, last question. What do you do to decompress? We'll start with you, Ben, this time. So, I've I really dove into um, church lately. Um, so, just kind of developing my my faith and my my understanding of of my understanding of my faith and and just wanting to get a little deeper with it. And so, the way I decompress is to just be around the people that will encourage me to get better in those ways, um, take my mind off worldly things of, you know, politics and work and, and just kind of focus inwardly and upwardly a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, but then in a more tangible way, um, you know, like I said, I, I enjoy music. Um, so, uh, listening, playing, just being around it. Um, I'll be excited for the days when we can get back to concerts and, uh, <laughs> go be be with people outside again absolutely well we're here in um florida they actually lifted all the all the stipulations so we're in phase three now so individual businesses and and some you know counties and and cities are kind of um saying well we still want x in place but the reality is now we're able to move around freely and we just did a fundraiser yesterday at my gym for the Down syndrome community, and it was incredible. It was so nice because you have these fit men and women that are in the same town where, you know, COVID has, has already been. You know, so it's not like we're sh- you know, spreading anything that wasn't already here. But you know, just just to be around people again and to do it for a good cause and to work on an element that as is going to make you far less likely to suffer from you know any disease i think it was it was so refreshing after all these months to feel some semblance of normality again i'm so curious to see 5 10 15 years what the social impact of all of this uh <laughs> we'll just say 2020 is ism um is going to cause on folks head and shoulders above potential physiological damage to their bodies from you know exposure to the coronavirus the mental impact i'm I'm really curious to see how how hard it's going to hit yeah well i think we're already starting to see it i I really do i've I've noticed this last month there's been a kind of wave of of you know people are in my own circles you know I'm, i'm noticing i'm being affected but what's sad is in 10 15 years if the message out of all this was just wash your hands and wear a mask and nothing about how to eat how to farm exercise you know mindful practice addiction 
then people may not even be here 10 or 15 years later because they're going to die of all the diseases that everyone ignored while COVID was here. All right, so Matt, same thing, decompress. Yeah, so I, I'm actually pretty bad at decompressing. I'm I'm always go, go, go. Um, but I've, you know, I've kind of tried to make a conscious effort with it. Um, I, I work out every day. Um, and that's kind of like my Zen, you know, or that's where I go to forget about life. Um, you know, I like high intensity interval workouts and kettlebells and stuff. And so that's kind of, it, it sounds weird because, you know, I'm elevating my heart rate and not necessarily decompressing really, but, uh, man, it's, a, uh, you know, I, I, I love working out and I, I love the way that I feel afterwards. And so, um, you know, that, that's something that I do to decompress. Beautiful. I had a, a Navy SEAL on Jeff Nichols, who was the first first person. I mean, people have talked about it since, but that really made me aware. You know, a lot of us would come off shift and and we work out what we think to to decompress. And obviously, if you've had a you know, decent night's sleep or whatever it's been, then absolutely, you know, you're in a good place to to redline it a little bit. But I think a lot of the municipal men and women we think that's going to be, you know, it's going to be a decompressor and actually it adds more stress. Whereas the same same kind of movement, but on a lower intensity, you know, whether it's rowing, whether it's, you know, running, swimming, hiking, whatever, has the opposite effect where it will deregulate the nervous system. But that was one of the big mistakes I made for the, the longest time was to come off, you know, 24 hours of being up all night and then go do Murph in the morning. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so apparently I need to work on it as well. But uh, I do throw like a, a yoga routine um, in, you know, kind of a, I don't know, you know, I'll roll out my legs. And I, I do yoga a lot too, which uh, is very, it's good for mindfulness and, you know, it, it's very relaxing. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you both for taking the time to come on. We've been almost two hours now, but uh, it's been such a, a unique perspective coming from, you know, the fire service within the Air Force. So I appreciate you jumping on at the different times on the, <laughs> the world time zone and, and connecting today. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And thank you for, um, you know, entertaining the idea of having us on again. You know, you're you have a long list of very reputable people that you talk with. And it's humbling to to be one of the the many guests that you have. And I'd like if I could just put a quick plug if there's any Department of Defense firefighters out there that are interested in and listen to our podcast. It's at the Fire Dog Podcast and it's available on all platforms. Uh you know, we're kind of looking to, you know, expand outside of the Air Force if we can. And so, you know, we'd love to have you listen. 